0: notes. If I put good morning or good afternoon, good evening, maybe good day. Let's go with that. Um, Thank you all for coming here today. Uh, So I'd encourage you to take out your Bibles. Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15 verse 33. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a Bible in the back of the pew in front of you. Um, and I see pretty much regulars here. There's not too many new people. I was going to say, if you don't have a Bible at home, please take one. Uh, it's important that you have easy access to God's God's Word. So this afternoon, I have set quite a task for myself with this sermon. Um, how many people have watched or remember the Antique Roadshow? Remember that show? Okay, good. Oh, there's a few I have to explain it to so Antique Roadshow is, it's a show where experts come together and people will bring their knick-knacks and their their family heirlooms, sometimes they'll bring some pottery, they'll bring some china, they'll bring maybe a painting, some people get really ambitious and bring this huge piece of furniture that's been in the family for generations, and, and they take it to experts and the experts look it over and they appraise it, and... It's really interesting if you watch the show, sometimes you can see the husbands. The husbands are sort of floating around in the background and they're like bored and it's just like, what am I doing here? And because it's the wife's heirloom. It's the wife's knickknack, right? So generally the husband's just kind of sitting there and, he, and he's not really paying too much attention and, until the appraiser picks it up and he starts getting a little interested and maybe the voice goes up a little bit and, and they're going, well, the husband goes, well, he starts to lean in. And then... During sometime during the show, the people are lucky, the appraisal takes a turn and and the appraiser will turn the gift over or the knickknack over and he'll look at the bottom and something can get really excited. Now maybe he's seen the mark of the maker on the bottom. And now the husband really leans in because he gets excited, the appraiser gets excited, and he tells the wife, This is worth thousands and thousands of dollars. And now the husband's like, oh, okay. Maybe I'm sure. So now he's now he's excited because he sees the value of it. And he can't wait to get back to his mates to tell him how smart he was that he didn't let his wife throw that knick-knack out for generations, right? But what changed? What what changed there for the husband? I mean, the knick-knack didn't change. It was still as valuable when they went there as when he found out what the worth was. But what changed was that the husband and the wife both began to have an an appreciation for the value of the gift. So that's the task I'm going to try and set for myself today, to to explain the value of the gift of grace. We live in a time where we are protected. We live under a period of grace. Because of the work that we're going to find out that Christ did on the cross, we're not in, in fear of immediate judgment of the wrath of God. Every time we sin, we don't have to worry about being punished um, so we have we have that period of grace in our lives right now and but it, it did it did come at a cost, and Jesus paid that cross cost so and that's why I hope that uh by the end of the message, I hope that we have a bit better understanding of the cost of that gift and that um, that we can come together and understand why we've placed our faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. Okay, so uh, let's look in Mark chapter 15, verse 33. When Josh and I were meeting earlier, it was kind of coincidental. Last week we were in chapter 14, verse 31. Now we're in chapter 15, verse 33. Okay, and God's word says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, uh, Jesus cried with a loud voice, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. There was also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger, and Jose and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. We just bow our heads and pray together. Father, I just thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. I just thank you that we have the freedom to gather here and study and go deeper. I just ask that my words be your words, my thoughts be your thoughts. If there's something that I say that's incomplete or incorrect, I just ask those words to fall to the ground. We pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit to open up our hearts and minds as we dive deeper into your word. And uh, may we find a full appreciation for what your word teaches us. But above all these things, we do thank you for your grace and for your love. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so um, we've actually been studying Mark in Altered all year long. And I've been telling the group that Mark is kind of like the action hero, director, writer of the gospel. Everything's short. He leaves a lot of details out. But uh, so last, since we... Dove into God's word last Sunday. A lot has happened through this, uh, the few days from the time that Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane until the time we see him here on the cross. I mean, Jesus was betrayed by Judas. Peter draws a sword and cuts the ear off the high priest's assistant. Jesus then reaches down and heals that man. The guards drag Jesus off, first to appear privately before Caiaphas in his home. And then Jesus is dragged before the entire Sanhedrin and he's brought up on trials in front of all of the religious leaders. Jesus is falsely accused and has to listen to the testimony of false witnesses. He is found guilty and mocked and is spat upon. He is punched. Portions of his beard is plucked out. Then Jesus is dragged before the Roman authorities and is questioned by Pontius Pilate. Pilate gets nothing from Jesus so then Pilate sends him over to King Herod to be interrogated by Herod. And when Herod, when Jesus arrives before Herod, Herod treats him like some sort of... He expects him to do a miracle, like some sort of parlor trick. He he tries to entice Jesus to show him some signs. Jesus remains silent in front of there. So then he's sent back to Pilate. And Pilate has Jesus and Barabbas stand before the crowd. We're all familiar with this. In a last-ditch effort, Pilate is trying to get an innocent man released. But what happens instead... The crowd, egged on by religious leaders in the crowd, scream, Crucify him, crucify him. So then Christ is sent off to the Roman garrison, where he is whipped and scourged and almost unto death. Then the soldiers drape a purple robe on Christ. They weave a th- crown of thorns. They place it on his head and they drive it in place with a staff, driving the thorns into his flesh. And again, Jesus is mocked by the Roman soldiers. After that, he's dressed in his own clothes. And he's told he must carry the crossbeam of his cross, the method of his own death, to his execution. But Jesus was beaten so severely that he was too weak to carry the cross. A bystander, Simon from Cyrene, is conscripted to carry the the crossbeam to Golgotha for Jesus. And then at nine in the morning, Jesus is laid on the cross on the ground. And nails are driven through his flesh. And the nails are there to keep him on the cross. And then the cross is raised up and is dropped several feet into a waiting post hole. And Jesus is hanging there on the cross. Now throughout all of this, Jesus has been silent. He's only answered calmly questions that directly addressed who he actually was. He remained silent before all of the false charges and all of the testimonies of his false accusers. And now, here in Mark 15, by this time, Jesus has been hanging on the cross for three hours. And when and we read in verse 33, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So two things I want us to pay attention to here in this verse. The first thing is the words, the whole land. In Greek, the word for land is g. G-E, and it has several definitions. It could refer to a local area, the land. It could uh, refer to a region, or the whole world, or the entire earth. So just from that Greek word, it's difficult to tell how large an area actually was in darkness. But the early church fathers wrote about this. Tertullian and Origen wrote in their papers, that actually the darkness extended all the way to the borders of the Roman Empire. So that indicates that the entire Roman Empire was under judgment. Which leads us to the second point. I want us to realize here, that is, what, what was the cause of the darkness? Some people claim that the darkness was a solar eclipse. It was a natural phenomenon, it was a solar eclipse. The problem with that theory is, Solar eclipses only happen during the new moon phase of the lunar cycle, okay? This is Passover. This event happening in the middle of Passover. In Jewish law, Passover only happened during the full moon phase of the lunar cycle. So this was not a solar eclipse like some people try to claim. And so we've now determined that it's a supernatural event. Now, others misinterpret the the darkness to signify that God the Father had abandoned Jesus and left the land. And actually, we're going to discover today the exact opposite is true. It's true in the Old Testament, God is often portrayed as light. But there's several times in the Old Testament where God is often, God the Father is depicted as darkness. In Genesis 15, 12, we read, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Isaiah, speaking about a time of judgment, says in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 30, They will growl over it that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress. And the light is darkened by its clouds. Darkness on the land is especially associated with God and his presence during a time of judgment. Isaiah chapter 13, verses 10 and 11 says, For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. The prophet Joel, in his book, warns us in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. So back here in, in Mark 15, what we are seeing here at this hour, the sixth hour, as it is recorded in some of your Bibles, what the Israelites called the sixth hour, we refer to as noon, noon. And at the start of this hour, we see darkness is descending on the land, signifying that God the Father is present for a time of judgment. Now, the Father does not unleash his wrath on those that were present that day that deserved it. The Father did not punish the Roman soldiers that nailed his son on the cross. The Father did not punish the religious leaders who lied and conspired to put his son on the cross. The father did not punish the raucous crowds who mocked his son as he hung there on the cross. And the father did not even punish all those in Jerusalem whose sins were the reason his son was on the cross. No, God's purpose for his presence in the darkness there on Golgotha on that day was to pour out his stored wrath on the only perfectly innocent one there, Jesus his son. This is the hour that Jesus was praying about in the Garden of Gethsemane that we went over last week. This is the cup that Christ asked the Father if it was possible, if it could pass him by. This is the time that grieved Christ so much that he began to sweat blood in the garden. So for three solid hours, the Father caused wave after wave of his wrath to crash down on his firstborn. His Prototakas. His heir to all of creation. Jesus absorbed this judgment that was rightfully due to others. Jesus willingly took this on himself. Jesus bore the sins of Adam and Eve and their children and grandchildren. Abraham was counted as righteous for his willingness to sacrifice his son Isaac, yet Abraham sinned. King David was considered righteous, yet he also sinned. For countless others in the Old Testament, Jesus was paying for their sins. Those present on the day of the crucifixion, not just at Golgotha, but also for the sins of all those in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, Jesus paid their sins that day. Jesus also paid for the sins that I committed before accepting Christ as my Savior. Before I knew Jesus on a personal level, I mocked him. I used his name as a curse word. I used the holy name of our Savior to express my anger and wrath at other people. He died for those sins. All of the sins this morning that I committed, he took that wrath. All of the wrath that was due to you for all of the sins that you committed before this morning, Jesus bore that judgment. All of the sins of all of the people from the time of that day of crucifixion until the time of today, Christ bore that wrath for all of them. And also, for all of the sins that I'm going to commit, and all of the sins that you will commit going forward in the future, for all of the sins for all of the people that are born today, and even for those that are not yet born, until the time he returns, he bore the wrath for those sins. Romans 3.10 tells us, None is righteous, no not one. My sin, your sin, all the sins of time past, present and future, that is the wrath that Jesus endured for three hours while hanging on a cross surrounded by thieves and soldiers and sinners of all kinds, taking our punishment due us by a holy and righteous God. Now, Now, have we turned over that gift of grace? Have we seen the mark of the maker? Are we starting to understand the value of this gift of grace? This priceless heirloom that we have? The true worth, the actual cost paid for this free gift we call grace, this gift was simply given to us. We don't deserve it. We cannot earn it. We have no hope of ever repaying it. Yet it is freely given to us by the one who paid its price in full. Let's go back to Mark 15, verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sapachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So after enduring three hours of the Father's wrath and judgment being heaped onto Jesus, we read that he cries out, That's how much pain he was in. Not all the physical pain. The physical pain is important, yes. But it's at this point that he felt forsaken. And he's actually quoting Psalm 22, verse 1, which says in full, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? But Jesus was not forsaken. God the Father was present. Pouring out judgment on Jesus, so why was Jesus quoting Psalm 22 and feeling forsaken? Let me try and explain. We're familiar with agape love, right? We've all heard of agape love. Um, that's a love that is unconditional, sacrificial, and biblically it refers to a love that—that's the love that God is. It's the love that God shows. And it's the love that God enables in his children. He pours out his agape love on us. And this is the type of love that we're to share with the world. And this is is how we show the world that God loves us. But in Greek, there's another word for love too. So we have agape love. And then there's a higher form of love above that. And the word is um, akapao. Akapao. Akapao shares the same root word in Greek as Agape but does have a definition in use. This is a little technical, so so bear with me. Akapau is also unconditional and sacrificial love, but the quality of this love is determined by the character of the one who loves. And the character of the one who loves also determines the value of the object that is being loved. Okay, so let me repeat. Akapau is love that is unconditional, it's sacrificial, but the quality of the love is determined by the character of the one who is doing the loving. And that determines the value of the object loved. So, akapau is a special love shared among the persons of the Trinity in their perfect states. Akapau is perfect love shared between the Trinity, between perfect beings. This quality of love is an action initiated by one's free choice. So it's not just the fact that it's shared, but it's shared because of Christ freely made the choice to crawl crawl up on that cross on our behalf. Several places in Scripture, in Romans 16.25, we don't have time to turn to those today, but Romans 16.25, 2 Timothy 1, verses 9 and 10 Titus 1 verses 1 and 2, 1 Peter 1.20, and even in Revelation 13 verse 8, the Bible tells us that this plan of salvation was made between the Godhead before the foundations of the world were even laid. It was at that point that akapau love was realized between the members of the Trinity. It is akapau that bestows upon grace the ultimate value and worth that it has. And also the value that grace should have for us. So, back to the feeling of being forsaken. The whole time that God the Father is pouring out his wrath on Jesus as the payment for the punishment of our sins, God the Father, for those three hours, is withholding his love from his Son. Let me illustrate. Do you remember as a little kid, were you ever given a time out by your parents? I'm too old. Timeouts weren't invented when I was a kid. Uh, My mom's favorite uh, method was the wooden spoon. So whenever I'd push my mom too far and I'd hear the utility drawer rattling in the kitchen, I knew my time was up. So she would grab me and she'd give me a a few paddles on the backside with the wooden spoon. But what hurt? What really hurt me? Was it the swats with the wooden spoon? No, not really. I mean, it was enough to get my attention. But what hurt even more was the withholding of my mother's affection from me during the punishment. She couldn't be angry and correcting and affectionate all at the same time. She didn't stop loving me, but she withheld her affection from me during the punishment. Just like when I do something to upset my wife. Remember those times last Sunday when I said Paul instead of, when she calls me Paul instead of babe or hun? Well, Yeah, those times. When I've done something to make her angry, uh, angry enough for her to confront me about it, at those times of correction, while I'm sleeping on the couch, she still loves me, but she is withholding her affection and our bed from me. That feeling, that absence of affection is enough to cause me to change my actions and to change. Now take those two poor little examples And magnify those feelings of when you were a kid or if you've ever had a a spouse withhold their affection. Now magnify those feelings immeasurably because we're talking about infinite, all-powerful beings here. That's acapel. That's the love that they share between each other. That's the love that the father withheld from his son for those three hours. The withholding of this perfect love that the three had been sharing between themselves before the beginning of time. This is the suffering that causes Jesus to cry out in a loud voice. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Remember throughout the trial, the mocking, the punching, the scourging, even the nails piercing his flesh. Scripture records Jesus as enduring it quietly. Yet here, at this hour, the anguish was finally enough. To cause him to cry out. Back in Mark. Verse 37. Let's jump down to verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry. And breathed his last. A loud cry. Jesus didn't whimper out quietly to his death. Jesus had been on the, hour, on the cross for six hours to this point. He completed what he came here to do. And for me... For you and for me, he let out a final cry and gave up his spirit. God was in control of the process the whole time. Friends, we serve a sovereign God. We serve the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Creator, the Sustainer, the reason for it all. That is who we worship and serve. And in verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This could only be done by God. This rending of the veil being torn from the top to the bottom. I mean, this curtain was massive. It was 80 feet tall. And the curtain separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. The Holy of Holies was the earthly seat where Christ sat on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. Or sorry, when God sat on the Ark of the Covenant. That was his earthly dwelling place. And when his son completed the work, he tore that veil. And Good Friday kind of has a special, is dear to me. It was this message, hearing this message for the first time clearly, that I finally came to Christ. When I understood what the rending of the veil meant, that I could now approach God empty-handed. I didn't have to go through a priest. I didn't have to bring samples. Uh, I didn't have to bring sacrifices. I didn't have to spill the blood of an animal in order to be able to approach God. This this is the passage that really got to me personally and made it clear that this was a plan that only God could, could have come up with. So in verse 39, we see, And the curtain of the temple was torn into... Oh, sorry. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. So the centurion. The centurion was a professional soldier. He was leadership level. He was in charge of at least 100 men. That's what the centurion indicated. And if he was in charge of the crucifixion squad he had probably seen countless men die on the cross before Christ. And he'd probably seen countless men die on the battlefield. But when Jesus died, he saw something different, something different enough in a way that he proclaimed, truly this man was the Son of God. The centurion was no theologian. He wasn't even Jewish. But he saw something on that day that separated Jesus' death From all the others that he had seen. Because he died in such a powerful and in complete control way. You all know how, I'm sure you've heard in Easter messages past, crucifixion was a horrible way to die. You usually died from asphyxiation. You couldn't breathe. You died with a whimper. Scripture proclaims and he tells us Christ died with a loud voice. Indicating he was in complete control the whole time. As a matter of fact, further on in Mark, Pilate's surprised that when uh, Joseph of Arimathea comes to claim the Bible, Pilate's surprised that he's dead already, because crucifixion could often take days. So just a few closing notes here on the times recorded in this passage. The Jews had three primary times during the day for prayer, and two of those times were also accompanied with sacrifice at the temple. Oftentimes as soon as the Jews would open their eyes, they would they would say a quick prayer to God. But then at, at the third hour at 9 a.m., as we know it, the first major prayers of the day were begun. And at the temple the morning sacrifices were offered at the same hour as the prayers were being said. So again, this was Passover, one of the holiest days of the year for the Jews, and a major and a day of major sacrifices. So at the same time that the first sacrifices are having their blood shed in the temple, Jesus is having his flesh pierced by the spikes, nailing him to the cross. The next time of major prayer in the day for the Jews was the sixth hour, or noon as we know it. God the Father was pouring his wrath out on the Son while he hung there on the cross at the sixth hour. And finally, at the ninth hour, or 3 p.m. as we know it, the afternoon prayers are beginning and the blood of the afternoon sacrifices are starting to flow in the temple. And it's at this time that Jesus cries out in a loud voice and gives up his spirit. The veil is torn, the earth shakes, the darkness lifts, and our sin debt is marked paid in full. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you humble and thankful for the work that your Son has completed on the cross on our behalf. Jesus was the perfect Lamb, the only one without blemish of sin on Him. The only suitable substitutionary sacrifice that could take our place of punishment of the wrath that we as fallen human beings so rightly deserved. Only perfect, loving, obedient beings such as yourselves could devise such a faultless plan that would allow us to spend eternity with you. Our feeble human minds remain amazed at such a plan as this. Thank you, Father, for the salvation. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our punishment. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for the discernment and the opening of our hearts and minds to the understanding of this plan and this gift. And we pray these things in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. So... Two things I want you to consider uh, as we leave here today. First, if you don't yet know Jesus as your personal Savior, if you don't have this gift of grace in your life, please come talk to me or one of the elders after the service, and we can discuss it more deeply. Second, we have left this account with Jesus dead on the cross. Christians will know that Jesus is removed from the cross, and he's laid in a borrowed tomb, And we will celebrate on Sunday what happens next. We have that hope in us. But from now until Sunday, I would like you to put yourself in the shoes of the followers of Jesus and what they were going through on that day. I want you to meditate on the fear and the confusion and the hopelessness that they were experiencing during the next couple of days. By doing this, I hope you will gain an even Even deeper appreciation for the gift of grace that we have been given. And for all of our friends and co workers and family members that don't yet know Jesus, keep in mind those feelings of confusion and hopelessness and what they are currently feeling. Grace is an amazing and precious gift, but we are not to hoard it, we're not to keep it to ourselves. We are meant to take that gift and our love and appreciation for the value of it and go and share that with others that don't yet know him. But know this, Redemption Church, you are loved.